This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. On this edition of the podcast, I'm joined by composer Ellen Reed, whose opera Prism receives its world premiere at LA Opera on November 29. Writing Act Two, I felt like I had a pit in my stomach when I was writing it, but it has been you know, a great experience to sit with the story and think about it from all these different angles and use the music to illuminate the different aspects of it. And if you think about even the title, it's about all these different kind of unconnected colors that come together through this one experience. Ellen Reed's prism deals with the boundaries we create around ourselves to separate ourselves from our own darkness or trauma and the lengths we go to to keep those boundaries up. And just a quick note, the subject of the opera and this podcast deal with issues and traumas raised by, among other things, the Me Too movement. It's not recommended for young people, and if the topic of assault can be triggering for you, please note that the discussion of this opera turns to that topic approximately 13 minutes in. It's a great pleasure to welcome to the podcast composer Ellen Reed, who we are speaking the day after a big world premiere at uh, the LA Philharmonic's 100th anniversary celebration. So first of all, congratulations, and how are you feeling? Oh, thanks. I'm feeling great, and it's so nice to be here with you. (laughs) And uh, we've been sort of marveling at the Los Angeles connection with your work this year. 2018 is the year of Ellen Reed does Los Angeles. Um, I've been calling you the unofficial composer in residence for the city of Los Angeles because LA Chamber Orchestra, LA Master Chorale, LA Phil, and now Los Angeles Opera have all premiered new work that you've written for them this year. Incredible. Thank you so much. It's just been such a great ride. Yeah, I love all these organizations, so it's really meaningful for me. And it's been, it feels like it's been forever since like Petrichor and Dreams of the World. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was this year. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Has that ever happened in your career before where everything happens in the same place, it seems like? This feels really rare. And I think it's all of these puzzle pieces fit together um, in a surprising way. But it's been really incredible to have the experience of working with such talented people and well-run institutions. Mm -hmm. And now have you moved to Los Angeles? This is home now or no? I'm bi-coastal. Yeah. So I've, I realized I lived in LA for six years and I've been bi-coastal for four. Yeah. So still bi-coastal. I really enjoy that. So you grew up in Tennessee. Um, When did you first discover classical music and that there was maybe compositional thoughts going on? I grew up in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, which is a small town outside of Knoxville that was created for the Manhattan Project. And then I went uh, to college at Columbia University, and I was really flooded with such a wide variety of music at Columbia that it opened up my mind. And I had sung in church choir and played piano growing up. And then my first weekend of college was September 11th. And something about that experience with other things that happened at the time kind of unlocked something inside of me that uh, felt like I needed to write music. And I had always heard music in my head when I was falling asleep. 
and it was orchestral music, which is interesting because that wasn't the type of music that I was listening to on the radio or participating in. And uh, when I was at Columbia, I started writing and one of my teachers was really supportive of me and I decided to go for it and felt like my whole world opened up. Mm. What happens in those moments when you hear things in your head that are unfamiliar to you and you realize like, oh, this is, um, you know, this is something that uh, is going to turn into something that's going to eventually make it out into the world? Now I can feel that way. Yeah. But at the time it didn't. It didn't feel that way, and it didn't seem weird. It just mm. was kind of what happened when I was falling asleep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's an incredible experience to have an idea that then gets brought into reality. And it's always so different when it's in reality, but that the journey from kind of the dream space into reality is, I just love that journey. Mm-hmm. Tell me about sort of the various strands of what you do. So you describe yourself as a composer and a sound artist, um, which I, I love. And, and the idea of playing with sound and manipulating sound to create work that, you know, then other people can argue about, you know, what category to, to put it in, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> and for you, this is just like, this is just what I do. Yeah, I mean, I think for people my age and for people who grew up listening to the music in the way that I did, which was very even. I would listen to pop music and I would listen to classical music and I would um, you know, sing in church choir and all of these influences kind of mixed together into the pot of what music meant to me. That music is very um, broad. And when we talk about prism, we should talk about this because the, the influences in the work are really extreme mm. and it's been super fun to work on that. Um, and the sound artist bit for me is about how we hear the sound. How is the sound happening in the space itself? And to me, the space that's beyond tone. In my imagination, when you get to a certain type of emotionality, there's noise. And so how do we deal with, with that whole spectrum of sound in space? So it's more than just a piece of music on a stage. It's a 3D body experience as well. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting because it, it really feels like now, you know, all of our artistic experiences are what people seem to really gravitate towards are these experiences that are totally immersive. Um, and so to to think about sound as it relates to space, as it relates to, you know, who's going to be where in that space. I mean, that's, those are the, the problems that you're solving, right? Totally. But I also don't know another way to think about it because those people will be moving through space no matter what. You know, the the concert hall has certain effects and frequencies that are more prevalent or acoustics that affect the piece no matter what. So whether or not you think about it is happening. Yeah. So I, I like to maybe overthink it, but definitely kind of dive into all the different collaborators on the piece, which involve the space mm-hmm. and certainly the audience, too. Tell me about that process. So you like to overthink it. What does that involve? <laughs> I mean, good question. You know, I don't know. Maybe Petrichor is a good example. Where so f- That's the piece you wrote for the chamber orchestra, and there were musicians all over the concert hall in various corners. Exactly. So the challenge of writing Petrichor is that it happened in two different spaces, but it was also um, a 
surrounding ensemble. So I had to make something in the score that could work in these two really different spaces, one of which was the Alex Theater and the other of which was Royce Hall. Also, the acoustics of the spaces were super duper different. Um, And then I wanted a piece that could work in another space. So I had to you know, get the like layout plans and the the maps of these different spaces and do sound tests in the spaces. And, you know, the piece came out great, but I wonder if all of those steps were necessary, (laughs) (laughs) but it's fun, you know, it's fun to think about it and in depth and try different things. Yeah. And then, you know, when the piece goes to a different concert hall, then, you know, there's a whole new set of plans. Yeah, exactly. And I thought for, if it could work in these two drastically different spaces than it could work anywhere. Yeah, yeah. I love that um, idea. So um, for Prism, how do you use the space of Red Cat? Because that's sort of like, a, that's just a, I mean, it's a black box. It's a blank canvas. It's, you know, here we go. <laughs> yeah. So each act of Prism has a different musical reference point. So act one is kind of this soft and lush, uh, normal like new opera normal sounding to me where its influences are also impressionistic and very acoustic. And so we're using the space super normally for the first act. And then the audience takes a break. And during intermission, we start to hear a big club beat happening inside the space. So one, the structure of the piece, it was really important to have the intermission so the audience could be in the lobby while the club music starts happening inside the hall, they're moving in back into the hall during the second act when the performers are entering this unknown club space. And that to me is um, the physical use of the space. We're also working with a great sound designer who will um, use effects on the instruments so that acoustic music of the acoustic music of one will sound more electronic and like synthesizers and like a club in act two and the the space spatialization of the speakers and the use of that in the space will that's how we're using the black box to evoke a, a story nice nice um and we'll let's let's talk about the the story and the drama in just a moment but um, just how this piece came together so and how um you got connected with los angeles opera um when when did that all take place I met Beth Morrison maybe six years ago, and we have been working on this piece for about four years off and on. And um, Beth has a relationship with LA Opera, and it seemed like an incredibly timely piece to do right now. And that's why we decided to have it happen at LA Opera. Mm. Um, And so Beth, James Dara, who is the director, Roxy Perkins, the playwright who's a librettist and I um, workshopped the piece at Arizona State University as well as at Champaign-Urbana and through those workshops and through readings we've had we developed the piece yeah and it's the having workshops like that allow to allow us to do things that are more daring because we could try things yeah and it's always amazing to me just sort of the length of time right that's necessary to to create a, a new specifically a new opera, operatic work, right? So, you know, we're not talking about, you know, dashing something off in, you know, a few months. We're talking multiple years, four years. Yeah, I think it's because it involves so many people and there's so many moving parts that if Roxy changes one word, it 
spills out into my writing, mm -hmm. you know, or if um, we thought at first the piece might happen in a warehouse, which was a really different kind of writing and imagination than it happening in Red Cat. Mm -hmm. So it takes a while to kind of spiral into the final product. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so um, how did it end up here with Los Angeles Opera? So Beth Morrison obviously has a great relationship with Off Grand, um, the really wonderful um, series here at LA Opera. Um, but she also, you know, she presents kind of all over the place. So, you know, how did how did you land on LA Opera? I think it was always the, the dream for it to happen at LA Opera. And so the piece was certainly premiering a prototype in January. And um, this opportunity opened up with LA Opera and it seemed like a good fit, I think because of my connection to LA as well as James Dara's LA-based and Roxy Perkins as well. And so it was really exciting to think about having something kind of hometown advantage. Is that what they call it? <laughs> sure, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know what I mean? In sports, home field advantage? Home field advantage. Home field, yeah. yes. Like, yeah, good to have something home field advantage. Nice, nice. You mentioned the timeliness aspect of, mm -hmm. of this piece. Uh, what, are you, what are you talking about in, in that regard? Our piece deals with the boundaries we create around ourselves to separate ourselves from our own darkness and the links we will go to to keep those boundaries up. And it specifically deals with that having to do with the sexual assault. And we started working on this piece before Me Too and delving into a lot of themes around the kind of lingering effects of a sexual assault. And it's been so fascinating to see that kind of rise to the forefront. I mean, in these past few weeks, over the past few years, and to be making a work about that has just been a really, really interesting experience. I'm surprised in the conversations that I've read around Me Too that I have seen less of people talking about the effects of an event like that, where a lot of the conversation around it is about the specific moment, but that a, a moment like that changes everything. And that's, that's kind of what our piece delves into in one particular person's story. It's amazing to see the just the national, international conversation that's happening. And, you know, I, I can't imagine what that must be like for, you know, literally tens or hundreds of thousands of, of women to now be, you know, making themselves so vulnerable in such a public space um, on such a large scale. And, you know, to have work like this that speaks to those stories, um, I can only imagine must be hugely therapeutic in a way. I hope so. Yeah, I mean, definitely delving into those themes showed me how the complex relationship I have to it. Mm -hmm. The bigness of the, of the moment, too. I mean, strength in numbers, um, comfort in numbers, I guess. Yeah, definitely. I mean, so just the, the piece specifically, a young girl has a traumatic experience and her mother creates an imaginary world so that she won't remember that experience. And the desperation of them to maintain that world is something that I think a lot of people will resonate with. Where anything but, let's just, we can't look over here. We can look anywhere, but not right here. And then the degradation of that world and the strength that it takes to um, look at your history and then to make a choice to stay in an imaginary world or 
move into reality even when you're not um, equipped to do that. So the mother is protecting the daughter, obviously, or thinks she's protecting the daughter by creating this imaginary world. And the the young woman eventually has a, a discovery moment. She finds herself in this in this tr- moment of trauma. And you know, here we are talking about this dramatic stage work, and you know, it's difficult to sort of talk about what the experience in the story is going to how it's going to play out on stage. But um, if you can sort of maybe give us kind of a sense for for what happens here in, in Act Two. Sure, yeah. I mean, it's such an intuitive thing that it's hard to describe linear in a linear way, which is what I think um, we're coming up against right now. Um, so in Act Two, um, the memory doesn't start dark. It starts really fun. And the mother and daughter are having a great time in this club. It's kind of bad. The daughter's a little too young to be there. But they're having a great time, and they love dancing. And then in a moment, the mother, not thinking anything would happen, leaves the daughter, and the daughter is assaulted. And then after the, the memory is made clear, we're back in what was the imaginary world that is now very real. And the daughter has to decide whether or not she stays with her mother in this imaginary world or goes into an unknown world where she's not equipped to survive, really. Hmm. You know, one of the things that um, has risen to the forefront of the conversation nationally when we're talking about the Me Too movement and, and talking about difficult topics like sexual assault is, at least it feels like we're we're doing a, a fair job at talking about what victims' experiences afterwards are like and what what they feel. And I'm curious how you sort of address the... So the the mother would have a a feeling of of guilt. Like, I somehow I let this happen. Um, the, The daughter, the victim, certainly, you know, in stories that we've... that I've read, you know, you hear about victims feeling guilt, even though, uh, of course, there's no fault um, on the victim's part or on the mother's part. No one, no one let anything happen. Uh, you know, a bad person did a an awful, unspeakable thing. So, you know, how do you sort of address those psychological elements of this difficult topic? In Act One, a lot of the mother and daughter's imaginary world is built around this story where the mother has saved the daughter. So it's every time they have the story time, there's this kind of magical story where they're um, two beautiful maidens at a castle and um, the mother saves the daughter. And so that's us thinking that this is the story the mother wants to be true. So she tells it and she tells it. And the daughter's guilt, there's a lot less of that because she doesn't remember at first which is super normal (laughs) you know super normal that after a traumatic event you actually don't remember it for a period of time and then when when she is made aware of what's happened to her the I don't know if there's space at that moment for her guilt Mm -hmm. I think there's space for the um, grief over lost time and anger at her situation but not guilt over what happened I think that would be prism too (laughs) <laughs> right. Certainly, in the spirit of the Me Too movement, in the spirit of um, this incredible show of of strength and vulnerability for um, tens, hundreds of thousands of women across uh, across the country, across the world, 
um, sharing their stories. I imagine in the course of talking about this piece, you're going to face questions from media or, or whoever, you know, is this, you know, somehow a, a personal work? Is that something that you feel comfortable talking about? Are you welcoming those types of questions or do they feel invasive? It feels like a moment when um, people are really curious if you're qualified to write about the thing you're writing about. And I'm qualified, but I am more interested in elevating the conversation to a broader conversation, which seems much more vital than sharing only my personal experience. Mm -hmm. What is it like to write about subjects like this? Mm -hmm. Is it a difficult thing? Does it leave you, you know, feeling drained after you after you write music to convey or portray these kinds of stories, this kind of drama? Well, I think it's inherently incredibly operatic and incredibly rich. Um, it is all of those things, but it's also so dramatic that it lives really well as an opera. Um, and it's deeply psychological, so that exposes these different layers to go into. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, writing Act Two, I felt like I had a pit in my stomach when I was writing it. Mm -hmm. um, but it has been, you know, a great experience to sit with a story and think about it from all these different angles and use the music to illuminate the different aspects of it. Um, and if you think about even the title, it's about all these different kind of unconnected colors that come together through this one experience. Mm -hmm. Musically, how do you sort of um, tackle the, the challenges of, uh, of building the score? I love a wide variety of styles. And so this piece really welcomed that because of the, um, the depth of the storytelling and the depth we needed to go to, which required too that there also be incredible highs. And so there are really rich melodic moments, rich singing duets in Act One that sound kind of conservative for, for my <laughs> style, but I really enjoyed writing it where you know, the ensemble has a harp and a French horn and a bunch of strings, and it's really um, warm and luminous in a way. <laughs> and then in Act Two, I got to write a really, really fun dance piece for the mother and daughter to dance to. And it was great to take the themes from one and then kind of transform them into some club music. And I, I love the connections of different styles of music because all of a sudden you syncopate one note and something that sounds like a choral masterpiece becomes a hip-hop tune, you know? And so I really enjoyed kind of leaving these Easter eggs of connectivity throughout the piece. Mm. That sounds like such a fun little puzzle to give yourself of like, you know, how can I twist and turn this and make it seem the same, but also be totally transformed into something different? Absolutely. Yeah, I would say, you know, listen, there's a theme for um, this kind of monster that lives outside their door. That's this unknown force that's total darkness in Act One. And that has a theme. And so you can listen for how that theme weaves through different moments in the piece as well as what we were talking about the um the story that the mother's crafted that I think probably she even believes at this point about how she saved the daughter there are some 
themes from that that show up throughout in different ways, mm -hmm. twisted and turned. And so many layers of, of meaning and emotion to play around with, too. And I don't, well, I don't want to use the word play too lightly, but, you know, just the depth of uh, psychological elements in this, in this piece and, you know, how one word or chord or phrase could have, you know, multiple meanings. You know, that's a rich thing for you to, to mine as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And even just shifting something, the instrumentation of something shifts the meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking like you got to do it and you did it so well at the end of Dreams of the New World. Like, you know, it's this like blazing moment of light and everything is, you know, super positive and upbeat and they're singing, you know, we're going to Mars. But the, <laughs> like the, the underlying thing is like, um, don't you realize like what you've done? And, you know, that like slightly, you know, sinister in the blaze of glory is something that I thought was just so awesome in that in that piece. And, you, you know, you get to do it all sorts of levels with this as well. Thank you. I'm so glad you got that from the piece. That's something that I think is really important. Yeah, totally. And also sometimes the absence of that sinister element. And sometimes just having this lightness feels really ungrounding. Mm. So getting to play with that. Um, and also in the third section, after we've been through so much, the third act uses a lot of extended techniques and um, muted sounds. So to me, it's about like this unspeakable rage, you know, so how can we get at that, this like rising unspeakable rage through the instruments? And to me, it's beyond tone. So we're in extended technique land where for some reason you can't make your violin sing. Mm. Oh, very cool. When you go into the concert hall or black box theater or warehouse or amphitheater at Walt Disney Concert Hall to hear uh, a piece of yours for the first time. Obviously, you've gone through the rehearsal process, so it's not like you're finding out, you know, what it sounds like or anything. But what's it what's it like in the, the moment before, you know, it goes in front of the public for the first time? I find that personally, my sense of time is really skewed and um, that slow things feel really fast and fast things feel really slow. And I'm always surprised <laughs> when people don't feel that way. So I think that's just my personal thing. But I thought that's the first time I watch it. And then if it happens again, then I'm able to feel it more. Yeah. I think for me personally, I prefer the rehearsal process because you get to really be vulnerable with the piece. But when there's an audience there, it shifts, yeah, it sense, shifts my sense of time. Mm. Do you have to hide that vulnerability when an audience is there? Or is it just there's nothing I can do about it now, so here it is kind of a thing? I think that I am trying to sense how people are feeling versus how I'm feeling. Yeah. that That's a really interesting point, too, because we did a live broadcast last week with the premiere of Andrew Norman's new piece, um, sustain and we interviewed him live on the air right basically five minutes before downbeat <laughs> why did you do that to him <laughs> well i i sort of felt like you know what? i should have apologized um but he you know he was game he was up for it and so yeah. you know my first question was how are you feeling and he said nervous <laughs> oh absolutely yeah yeah and i think that those nerves kind of impact your ability to sink into something for me they keep me kind of up above it mm -hmm. kind of in my head not able to let the work penetrate. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I don't think that that really matters at that point. 
you know, at that point, I'm the least important person in the room. It's happened. It's on stage. Those people are taking it. My work is done. Yeah. That's so interesting. Where does this head after LA Opera? You said it's going to prototype? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a rolling world premiere that's happening at LA Opera and then at prototype in January with a Trinity Choir at both and Anna Schubert and Rebecca Joe Loeb as the leads at both. Mm, nice. What else are you working on right now? Anything else for <laughs> any other Los Angeles-based company? <laughs> or are you Something getting out I of can't town? can't disclose. Seriously? <laughs> yeah, oh, seriously. I know. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when we're off the air, I'll tell you. <laughs> got it. Got it. Oh, that's yeah. so great. I feel like this closes, personally for me, a chapter of projects I've been working on for a long time, especially PRISM and the Master Crowd piece, which are multi-year endeavors that I'm excited to try some different things, too. Ellen Reed is the composer of PRISM, a new opera which receives its world premiere at LA Opera Off Grand, PRISM at LA Opera is presented in collaboration with Beth Morrison Projects with four performances from November 29 through December 2. For more information, visit laopera.org. This is Behind the Curtain at LA Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lawrence. If you've enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.